Yeah. No, get the door. You cover the door. That's right. You cover the door. All right. Yeah. And you, you get the car ready. You get the car ready. We're making our dash. We're making the dash soon. I'm ready. I'm locked and loaded here. Oh. Oh, I hit record. Shoot. All right, you guys, settle down back there. I'm recording. So here I am in the secret location, but we're about to leave. I just had to load up the uh, old old 45 pistol here. We're making a dash. The base, the secret base, has been infiltrated, unfortunately. So we're on the move once again. But before, before we head out to our new base, which may or may not involve uh, discussions with Elon Musk and, and some of his great technologies, we are going to do the second emergency podcasting system of the year. My recent shows have drawn a lot of comment, uh, particularly from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I feel Jason's call-ins are so important, despite everything else going on in the world, that I am going to delay the evacuation of our current location to deal with these calls. I have to get them out of the way. I want to go to the new location with my mind cleared, able to sleep restfully tonight. So with that, let's get on with this edition of the emergency podcasting system. But oh, lo and behold, before we get to the call-ins, we got the angry DM. All right, I rolled a nat 20. That's a hit. But hold on. Let me uh, look up how much damage my geese arm does. Why didn't you write it down on your character sheet? I'm sitting here behind three screens of facts and figures, and you can't be bothered to write down damage for all your weapons? I come to the game each week with more information at my fingertips than the top generals bring to a meeting with the leader of a small nation. Maybe you should stop working on your 10-page backstory and make some notes that are actually helpful to the game, Snowflake. AMW Jason here, great hearing Sonny on your podcast. Really enjoyed that, and I'm not sure why I'm sending you this message this way. Set a speak pipe or something, but that's what I hit in the car, so that's what you get. <laughs> um, now, as far as the interview with Sonny, I think that was a great discussion. I'm glad you had it. I hope you get the other guest on, and I hope you have that discussion as well. I do not think that kind of limited railroading is a bad thing at all. I'm with you guys. And same thing with player agency. You know, having played in a number of your games, you are a little bit railroady sometimes, you know. But because you have certain adventures you prepare and you want to run. And we have player agency in those adventures without doubt. But you kind of nudge us along to those adventures, which is fine. No complaints on this part. Um, yeah, I think the, the whole Quantum Ogre thing is really tied in with these battle maps these days. And, and I think... A lot of times when you hear the talk about that, it's because somebody has a battle map set up and it's ready to go and they want to use that particular battle map because they put a lot of effort into it. So I, I think that's part of it. That's not all of it, but that's a big part of it. Anyhow, it was a really great discussion. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you're out there doing this still. And your new mic sounds good. 
excellent there. And, um, yeah. So I hope you had a great vacation or well, it wasn't really vacation it was work trip, right? But I hope you had a great work trip and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Jason, thanks for the call. And I have to say, I haven't been doing a good job calling into your show recently because I've been mostly participating in the monthly movies. So that's fun. I like to do that a lot. And that requires a lot of work, of course. I've got to watch the movie, then make a nice uh, review for you, which then eats up time I would have normally spent just calling into your show randomly. But as you mentioned, I also was on a vacation, work trip slash couple days of vacation, you know, a day and a half of vacation weaved in on a week-long business trip. And in August, I was away for two weeks. So I've just been behind on your show, just behind on a lot of things. And, and my work has uh, been uh, kicking my butt the past couple months. We got end-of-year stuff going on. It's just a lot going on. So I, I will try to call in. You've had a lot of great shows recently, and I need to call in. I do need to call in. And I'm working with Rob Ritchie right now. We're trying to convert my module over for Amazon, and he sent me a proof. And uh, I'm saying this in hopes that Rob's listening, and I just haven't even looked at that yet. It's been two weeks. So, But I've been gaming, so I'm finding time to do games, and, and I'm doing my show. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. i got to get my priorities straight. So... The interview is sunny. Yes. And, and, you know, there is a huge difference. And and some people might not even consider a DM bringing a preset adventure to a game as being railroad. Not to the game, but to the session. Uh, some people may say that's normal. That's not railroading. But I was in a discussion with, this, with these younger people, these younger folk. And they like to run the preset adventures too, but they still, I was told that's still considered railroading. I got to be honest with all of my listeners. I don't like these terms at all. Sandboxing, railroading. I'm not a terms kind of guy. I don't run around my life classifying myself. I don't like to say what I am. I'm this, I got that. I'm another thing. I'm an E-G-I-F-O or I'm part of a, a different kind of community. I, I don't like that stuff. When I run a game, we're just running the game. I don't really think, am I railroading or am I sandboxing? We might do it all in my game. Just like uh, uh, my my next interview, not with Sonny, but with Barty College. These are all just ways of running games. I'm just running a game. Railroading, in my opinion, means... You are literally making the players do certain things within the game. You cannot negotiate with this monster right now because I'm not in the mood for it. I just want you to fight. Just, just fight. That's railroading. The players have tactics and tools that are available to them. And I'm going to talk more about this in an upcoming call of yours, Jason. So from that perspective... I don't view myself really as a railroader at all. I always bring a set adventure, and I do make it pretty clear that this is really what I had planned. But you guys know there's other sessions when we have uh, maybe a makeup session or an extra session. I might not have much prepared at all, and we kind of sandbox it. So I, I believe the DM needs to be nimble, creative, and able to use any one of the adventuring styles at any time. But I hope, I hope, very rarely do I kind of say, hey guys, let's just skip that 
aspect and move to the end. I did it that one time with my Monday night game. I don't think I do it very often. Um, but, you know, we're adults now and time is crunch. So sometimes it makes sense for the DM just to be honest as a human outside of the game with the other humans you're playing with and say, hey, guys, we could either wrap up now or or continue you know, but we don't have a lot of time. So what do you guys want to do? And then if the group says, yeah, let's just kind of wrap it up here or let's just take this other turn so we can end the adventure. I think that's okay now. I think, you know, it's okay. You know, you're all adults. You're all playing together and and you're trying to manage, you know, we're adults. We have things going on. We just have a lot of things. And Jason, you know this more than anybody. You, you get busy and Sometimes it makes sense to out a game, manage the scenarios. I don't consider that a railroad at all because it's collaboration. So anything, a railroad is when the DMs is basically forcing, forcing actions on you that aren't the only action available. If the DMs forcing you to make decisions, then why doesn't he just play with himself? Because it's just solo play. Uh, and I would say that of players too. If you want the game to go exactly your way all the time, uh, then solo play. Don't play with other people. So that's it. That's it. Great. Thanks for calling in, though. Thanks for calling in, Jason. Hey, Jason here. I couldn't agree more with background versus backstory. I honestly don't see a need to have backstories in Zero to Hero games, in your old school TSR era games backgrounds are plenty that's all you need to move forward and play the game and you can develop the characters they go as far as muddles though i'd like to discuss the idea of just accepting rules for what they are and why dms feel the need to fuck with the rules and muddle them why do dms want to mix they're you're playing a perfectly good AD&D game and then the dm wants to mix in b basic rules just because they're bored. I mean, that's as bad as a player when introducing backstory. What is the purpose of changing rules where all the players are happy and the DM just gets a bug up their butt and wants to change the rules because they get bored, but the, nobody else in the group wants to change those rules. This is a problem I've seen in a variety of different places. Like, hey, I'm going to start a new game and, and this isn't this is addressing a different GM who I won't name, but you know, I'm going to start a new game. Here's my three pages of house rules, but you know, nobody is interested in those house rules. Those house rules don't necessarily benefit players at all. They're just cause something bugs the GM if they were a player, but they're not even a player. So ultimately the house rule changes aren't going to affect the GM at all. They're just to change things up. What's the point of that? I, I don't understand that. Just, accept the rules as written, play them, and be happy. Now, I'm not saying house rules are bad if the group agrees to them, and I'm not saying that everybody has to try to play rules as written. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying changing things just to change things isn't necessarily a good thing. But I'll throw that open for the court opinion. The muddle. The muddle to mix up to mix up. I won't say it all. I won't I won't read every word in the definition of the model which I've done when I do the basic to AD&D model. And I this segment of my show, the basic to AD&D model has caused me so many headaches because I get yelled at, yelled at 
in virtual typing language by all kinds of people who tell me, why are you even calling it the basic to D, uh, AD&D model? Because AD&D came out before basic. So I constantly have to defend myself. I'm, I'm a consumer. So when I'm a consumer back in 1981 or two, I'm 11 years old. I am not interested in the publishing sequence of these games. I go to the bookstore. Well, I used to go to a little bookstore in a Chamonix mall, which is gone, I think. Uh, and the bookstore certainly gone. The bookstore was gone while I was in college. I think the bookstore closed or, or shortly thereafter, which is tragedy. It was a great little bookstore. Had had a lot of games, hobbies in it, like D&D. So then I had to switch. At some, and I also would go to the Willow Grove Mall where I grew up, I couldn't walk to the Willow. We would walk to the Chamonix Mall. It was about a two-mile walk, but we could not walk to the Willow Grove Mall. Well, we could have, but we were not going to walk to the Willow Grove Mall. But mom mom would drive us to the Willow Grove Mall or someone else's mom, and we'd walk around. I'd always go to B. Dalton or the Walden Books, and I'd get something from D&D. Now, why, why am I saying all this? Because the internet didn't exist. Believe it or not, you young folk out there or you people who are too old to remember, there was no internet. I didn't go to the mall with my phone in hand looking up what's out new from TSR. I would just buy what's ever on the shelf. So the first thing I bought was the basic set. Now, I had some friends that had the box basic set, and they also had the player's handbook and the DMG. Those originals that came out in the 70s, in the late 70s with the cool covers. I ended up getting the ones with the second, uh, you know, the sixth printing covers. So they kept the original covers for so many printings and they changed the covers in the 80s. So, but I, I didn't have availability. I could, you know, I didn't look at the beginning of those books and look at the copyright page. I, I didn't know the advanced player's handbook came out before the basic box set, the Mold Bay. I didn't even know the other basic edition existed. The other one, I don't even know. I can't remember who, the Holmes. I didn't know any of this. So for me, I'm a consumer. I just, my experience dictates in my mind the order of these games. So like many of you, the ones who don't give me a hard time about the model, it's basic. You played basic. Then you started playing AD&D. I and and so why does the muddle exist? I I had to discuss the muddle at at the Memorial Day Uncon because one of our uh well-known and well-established and very skilled dungeon masters was still muddling the dexterity bonus for um reaction in his AD&D game. He still thought it applied to the dexterity and not the surprise. So that's an example, Jason, of a muddle where it's unconscious. You you say in your your message to me, which I think is a little um a little tongue in cheek, because you and I just had that discussion when you were rolling up your new character, uh, where I said if you'd like to use the adjustment page in the basic edition on your on your ability scores, I would allow that. I would allow that model. And you said, no, I want to just run the rule. I thought we were running raw, raw rules as written. And I said, okay, well, I'm just giving you the choice. I wasn't railroading you. I didn't say you had to adjust your scores. I was just allowing it if you wanted to. 
But this other DM, he wasn't actively muddling the rules. The muddle happens because your brain is muddled. Your brain is addled. Your brain is fogged. You don't you don't remember that A D and D did it differently than basic, the DEX adjustment, the DEX reaction adjustment. You just do it because maybe you didn't read the DEX ability score that carefully. Because it almost it almost the whole DEX description is almost identical to the basic description. The numbers are different. The bonuses start at different levels and stuff, and the bonuses are slightly different. But if you didn't read the description below the, the table, you didn't realize that they were switching it to the surprise segments rather than the initiative role. It's a normal muddle, just like a lot of people muddle the sleep spell. A lot of people run the sleep spell according to the description in the basic book and not according to the descriptions in the player handbook. Now the player handbook came out first, so why are they muddling it in that direction? Well, again, to all the people who throw arrows and rocks and say, you are making a mistake here because it should be the other way around. A, D, and D to basic model because the basic came out after advanced. But that's not how the consumer, who are the most important people in this whole thing, play it. They play basic first, then they move to A, D, and D. And the model, therefore, goes in that direction. So muddle indeed. You're right. You're right. Uh, now to another point you made, Jason, you're completely right. I've thrown out my homebrew rules for my Monday night game. I never used homebrew rules for the Friday night Greyhawk, except I, I would allow the adjustment if you want. But I, I only offered that. I, I don't I only offer it once in a while, depending on my mood. Um, so I had a lot of homebrew rules back in 2020. When I started Monday night AD&D, because I had been playing Sunday AD&D in person, and I was playing with a lot of guys who played other editions. So we had conversations over the course of two two years about different ways we could run the game. And so I started putting together some homebrew rules that I thought might make the game more appealing to younger folk who played other editions. And then I, I found them all out, actually. I slowly but surely been throwing out my own homebrew rules because I agree with you. The game as written in AD&D has a lot of flaws that's not perfect, but I love it. And the rules are very elegant when you really get down and start using them. But I disagree with you, Jason, on one, one point. I think it's okay to do the basic to AD&D model. I do think it's okay. If your DM wants to say... Uh, let's just use the sleep spell rules in the basic edition because they're they're easier. That's okay. I know you're you're. I know. Shame on me, but I think it's okay. Um, and I think it's okay to pull out rules from other RPGs or other editions if the DM and the players want to do it. You know, people people need to be able to run games the way they want to run the games. So, so that's it, Jason. You know, you don't want to, but other people might want to. It's okay. You know, Jason, I, I thought a little more about your call in and, and you talked about a couple other things in, in the model. And this is this is really muddling my mind. I can't even work. You know, the backstory in a way, in a way, and you 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 made the perfect connection there. Muddling rules by a DM is like introducing a backstory by a player. Um, and 
players also want to change the rules too. So let's not kid our kid here, kid ourselves here. It's not just DMs who muddle the rules. And as I said in the previous segment where I addressed, you know, part one of my response to your call in, I think there's a lot of DMs and players who muddle basic to AD&D by accident, by uh, it's unintentional. But there's a lot of muddling of the rules that's very intentional, very intentional. And there are magazines that used to be published in the past that like Strategic Review and other other magazines. This Pegasus, I, I see this Pegasus magazine, where the old war gamers, the ones who want D&D to be more like an actual war game, are changing the rules constantly to quote unquote improve the rules. So that's very deliberate, right? So there's very deliberate changing of the rules. And um, and that's fine, actually, for them. They're trying to take what was created by Gygax and TSR and Moldvay or who, whatever edition they're using, maybe even OD&D. And maybe they have a lot of experience with the old war games or they have a lot of experience with something else. And they like they can vi- envision the marriage of those rule sets to make a game that really suits what they want to do, and I feel that's what the backstory does for a player. They they play D anD D long enough, uh, and they get a little bored with the, the the standard character classes, and they maybe they're really into the literature or the movie fiction, and uh, they just want to they just want to play a certain type of hero or have a certain background maybe they want their background to be like conan's where their village was sacked and then they were kidnapped and they were they got bulked up because they had to push the wheel of of doom or whatever that was called and um the wheel of woe and that's why they're a big fighter you know that's okay i i can see the appeal of that quite frankly but um Unless everyone's on board, I, I don't understand the attraction of it when you're coming to the table with three or four or two or three other players and a dungeon master or maybe even more. I think I think this loses its appeal with even more players, six players, seven players. Maybe you're at a table with ten players. Why, why do you feel the appeal of that really unique backstory is going to be universal across the table. Like other people are going to not really care too much about that backstory. Like who cares? Okay, fine. You're kind of like Conan. We get it. You're kind of like Anakin Skywalker, right? You don't really know who your father was and whatever. I mean, yeah, sure. Players can come up with all kinds of things and none of it's really creative. I think I mentioned this in my podcast uh, on background and backstory. No, no one's really coming up with anything that unique. You're just pulling out a novel and, and making a, a similar story. Uh, what, what can be unique is the story you make together with those seven other players or even two other players or three other and the dungeon master. That is the unique story that you can make together through playing the game. And if the game's good enough and the players have lots of interesting challenges and they do all kinds of interesting and cool things to solve the challenges and there's interesting fights and there's dramatic battles and there's you know critical hits that take down something powerful, 
faster than you should, or you make some saving throw, you make an improbable saving throw. Those are the stories. Like that's the unique story. That's the stuff you're not going to find in the literature or on a movie. So when I play, my personal opinion is I don't like to play characters out of books and stories uh, or, or film. Uh, that's why I don't really play the Lord of the Rings games. I, I don't like to or Star Wars games. I like those movies too much or those novels for Lord of the Rings. Uh, I like them too much to ruin them in my own mind by playing them also. I don't want to play Luke Skywalker. I don't want to play Darth Vader. I don't want to play Aragorn. Or But other people do, so that's okay too, right? I'm not even being critical of that. That's just me. I like to make up my own stories. I like to feel like I'm creative. But I like to write also, and I'm probably really lousy at it, but I I like to feel I'm a, I could be a creator too. So I don't want to copy something that's already been done. That That's boring to me is copying what's already been done. But to other people, they have really great imaginations. They want to be Harry Potter, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with it. But if, you know, you got to find the right people. You got to find the right people. If you're one of those people that wants to have a really detailed background or backstory, you make sure you get the right dungeon master and the right uh, group of players to play with. That's all. That's all. Don't Don't play with the group that's like, we don't really care about your backstory. And I think people generally don't. But once in a while, I have old school players plop down a detailed backstory in front of me. And, um, you know, I take it with a grain of salt. But if I figure, if it's creative enough and it's flexible enough, it's like it's neutral enough within the world we're running that we are running together, I try to be mindful of it. I'm not totally, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm too much of a jerk in real life. You know, I... I'm flexible. Hey, you bring me something good and creative and you worked on it. I'm going to respect you. I'm not going to be like, dismiss you. I'm not going to scourge of the North. I'm not going to tell you to get the heck out of my store. Uh, I'll say, all right, let me take a look at it. You know, if I could work it in, I'll work it in. And then I might read it and I might say, oh, wow, this is pretty good. I had that happen. A player came into a game, my Monday night game. And he had a really interesting backstory. At first I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh, brother, here we go again. But I read it and I'm like, this is actually pretty cool. I like it. I like it. So you know what? That's the point. You know, if you're going to introduce a backstory and you're in a group that, you know, really doesn't like it, they don't really do it. Just be prepared to be rejected. And if you're rejected, just don't have hard feelings. Take it somewhere else. But maybe the DM and the other players don't reject it. Maybe they say, hey, this is actually pretty cool. So, you know. Just know your audience and be prepared for anything. You know, be a, be a, you got to be a stoic about things. You're going to present that detailed backstory. You can't control the reactions. You're going to get to the backstory. You should say to yourself, all right, I just rolled up a new character. I'm going to bring it to the group tomorrow night uh, at D&D session. And I understand that they're going to probably reject it. They're not going to be that receptive to my backstory. So I pre-accept that. I accept that before I go in. That way, when, when they do reject it, you're, you're like, yeah, I figured. That's cool. I just want to show it to you guys. I'll just take this character and use them somewhere else. But you never know. You might be surprised. You know, you might roll a one or two on that six-sided dice, and the DM says, you know what, I kind of like this. We're, we're, we're going to work with this somehow down the road. Thank you. Um, so anyway, there you go. That was a good call in, Jason.
It required two parts, two parts. AMW Jason here, just listen to your talk the Barty College. Really interesting. Um, I'm sorry we got the abridged version. I would like to hear your points of disagreement. I think that would have been interesting. Put me down as somebody that does not like to see the muddle between basic and advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I like to see them left in their own games as separate games. Uh, maybe that's a discussion for a future time. I will say when you talk about the procedures and telling the players to just get on with it and, you know, talking about checking doors and this and that, they're near the end of the talk. You know, my last character in your Friday night game, my dwarf, died because he opened a drawer and there was a poison needle trap on the drawer. And But he didn't take all the time to all these procedures. He just opens the drawer and boom, dead. So, you, you know, that's an argument for doing those complicated procedures because I lost the character with a 18 percentile strength, right? But it's okay. I'm not bitter. Not at all. Anyhow, great, great interview. Really enjoyed it. And let me continue to catch up on podcasts. Take care. I will talk to you soon. Hey, Jason. I really appreciate this call in because I want to probably, I probably realize the perception that we maybe, maybe people are perceiving that conversation the wrong way, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe we just weren't being very clear. Um, what you describe, uh, and I don't know about Barty College. I, I get the sense he does feel the incessant checking for traps and stuff can bog the game down. That, that's actually expressed in the books, actually. Gygax himself uh, discusses that eventuality, that players will bog the game down with excessive listening, excessive checking, traps, all that stuff. And um, so every DM can must deal with that aspect of the game. And there are tools built into the game to deal with it. And and none more than the random roll. Uh, you know, checking, excessive checking for traps uh, takes a long time. And, and if a DM is using the rules available, you know you should roll uh, random monsters at a certain frequency and checking uh, carefully a hallway takes a long time. So I don't think I, in particular, am frustrated by that. I want the players to check for traps and do the normal things to protect themselves, to play smart. I don't mind listening at every single door, and I don't feel like I have to plant a bunch of earwigs on them. It doesn't take long to roll a 20-sided dice to see if a normal player hears something on the other side of a door. It's just a quick roll. And then if it's a thief, it's a percentile die. It doesn't take long. Uh, you should factor it, though. It's a one minute. It's one minute to listen. So if you're keeping track of turns to do your random rolls, if you're rolling each turn for a random encounter, you just need to... It's just a tick mark on a paper. They they spent one minute listening at a door. You roll the dice. It's not a big deal. I don't get frustrated by that. I think what um, 
Bardi College and I were talking about was bigger than that. And what we mean by that is not the employment of standard D&D tactics, tapping with the pole, closely examining, uh, you know, uh, not, the thief's not the only only player that can check for traps, by the way. Any player can say, I'm going to look it over and see if there's a trap. You could do that. Now, my, in my game, except for the dwarf that has the ability, if you have the ability to find something and it's a roll, like the dwarf has the ability to find pits and other kinds of traps, like things that, uh, you know, stone related, it's a roll, I think. So I say make the roll. I don't ask the thief to say, what are you actually doing to look for the trap? You don't have to ask the thief what he's doing. Look for the trap. He's got a he's got a chance. It's skill. A non thief, I would say. Well, what are you going to do to look for the trap? I'm going to tap the floor of my pole. Okay, any player could do that. Any player could do that. And I might not even roll. If there's a hollowed out section of the floor, I would just say, yeah, you 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 could tell the difference, right? So if they're checking a chest for a trap, maybe they have observed the thief in the past and they say, you know, I saw the thief in the past would check the lid or check around the lock. I might, I might give them a chance to find a trap. That's okay too. I don't think that's bogging the game down. That's actually playing the game. I think what we're expressing, or maybe not Bart, I don't want to speak for Barty College. You can follow up with him on the Grog Talk uh, channel. But for me, when the players uh, obsessively and excessively plan how to enter an area or excessively or obsessively, uh, I don't know, organizes themselves before they open a door and the players themselves are taking 20 minutes out of the game. And I'm not making that number up. This literally happens in games all and it's all games when the players just are trying to be so careful in the detail of how they do certain things and it bogs the game down literally out of the game like out of game time and i can literally just get up from the desk and make a, a pizza or something while they're having this discussion and i'm not kidding i mean this happens and I'm not upset. I'm not. I'm not being critical. So I know my players listen to my podcast. I'm not. You know, I'm not upset by it. But I, I find it interesting that that happens. That that level of detail will happen, and it will totally bog the game down. Or now I just listened to James's uh, the Grog Talk uh, uh, two Fridays ago or Friday last Friday, and he had Pulsiver on there, one of the originals of the game, and he he was going over tactics. And even I, he talked about reconnaissance. Reconnaissance is a natural part of the game. And I agree. I don't mind when players do recon. They want to recon an area. What I I don't like, or what not don't like, what I find a little interesting or a little frustrating that can bog a game down is when multiple sessions of recon are taking place. Be after the first recon, if you're not really that successful, if the DM doesn't drop a lot of clues or you really can't see through the impenetrable fortress doors and understand exactly what's going on inside, further attempts to recon from outside are probably going to be just as fruitless. But sometimes players think, well, we didn't find anything that time. Let's just recon next time. And I do things to advance the action. You did get caught. A patrol found you. You got attacked by a wandering monster. 
And despite all that, the party might still want to recon. And that's where I feel we start diverting. And I, I'm not even saying the players are wrong. Maybe they're fine. Maybe this is how the game should be played. But I find it a little tedious that we have to spend multiple sessions with different recon efforts. And there's just not much to, there's not much to say uh, because the, they're not reconning into the actual area they want to go to. They're skirting around it trying to recon. Instead of sending maybe a cloaked elf in or using an invisibility dust, which actually one of my parties had. Um, or maybe, yeah, maybe not yet. Yeah, I think they had it. Anyway, or an invisibility potion. Uh, or, or having the thief go in alone. So instead of penetrating the area and trying to recon that way, they, they try to recon by skirting around. Or maybe they, they don't try to capture a guard. Or maybe they didn't spend enough time interviewing NPCs to get information. So, and I'm not pointing the finger at particular players, or I, I this is neutral. I'm just saying players can, they have their own agency, but through their own agency, they can really bog the game down with analysis paralysis. And that's where I equate it to, we're a bunch of middle-aged dudes who have a lot of wisdom, and what we're trying to do is eliminate as much risk as possible to turn the tables around to make the encounters as favorable as possible. When honestly, the players have the tools available to them when they have an encounter, no matter what the encounter is, and no matter how unprepared they are, there are tools available in-game that you can use that are often overlooked. Hey, we have a bag. We have a lot of gold on us. Let's just bribe our way out of this. Or let's just run. Or let's just, you know, there, there are other ways to deal that are often not really considered. But there's a lot of this out-of-game stuff or this other, like, reconnaissance stuff that players think are, are really valuable or, or are going to be useful. And some, now here's your point, Jason, to your point. You open the drawer without much thought. And that, you know, sometimes taking care is worth it. But I would say I was actually surprised you just opened the door, the drawer. I, I even, I think I even hesitated and I, I clarified with you. You're just going to open the door and you said, sure. And you said, yeah. Um, you know, um, the, the game mechanic there is clear. You could have said, I would like to search the door, investigate first to see if it, I can tell if it's trapped in some way. But you, you didn't declare that. You made it very clear you were just going to open it quickly. Um, and it was trapped. So I never have a problem with players wanting to use actual game mechanics, like search for a trap, look for a trap, explore that way. I like, I like non-thieves, though, who don't have a skill role. Anyone who doesn't really have a skill role... I'd like them to be very specific in what they're going to do, though. I'm going to look around the outside of the drawer to see if I can see anything. Or I, as I slowly pull the drawer open, I might shove my sword in there, move away, and pull it out the rest of the way. Something like that, you know? You have to be very detailed if you're not a thief. A thief simply rolls. Oh, and I can say, oh, you found the trap. Then they can roll, and you disarm the trap. We don't have to discuss how. The thief can do it, right? So when it comes to reconnaissance, 
you got to be careful. I got to be careful as a DM because I don't want my players to totally abandon the idea of doing reconnaissance. But I do want the players to understand that if you do too much of something, each time you do it, if it doesn't bear fruit, you're also risking. You're risking turning the tables against yourselves because the NPCs are not stupid. And the more they realize you're out there or somebody's out there spying on them, the more likely they're going to be ready for you when you finally finally decide to make your um, penetration of the of the scenario, whether it's a castle or a keep or a camp or just someone in the town. Maybe you're asking too many questions around town. Maybe you spend three sessions doing an investigation, so to speak, asking people about something. Well, word is going to get back eventually. You're going to ask the wrong person eventually. So players have to maybe embrace the risk a little more and go for it. There's something to be said with just going straight in sometimes and catching, and Pulsifer mentioned this, when you catch them off guard, catching uh, uh, the enemy off guard is a, can pay huge dividends to a party. So again, back to your point, Jason. I'm never annoyed if players want to use actual game tactics and use their skills. In fact, I want the thief to use their skill all the time. I, I get a little annoyed when thieves are are played and they don't really use their score. They're not out there checking for traps all the time, or they're not picking pockets. I mean, I, I have thieves that never pick pockets, and that just they never want to pick a pocket. So anyway, good call in though. It's all it's all very thought provoking. It's very fascinating. AMW Jason here. Really enjoyed episode 219. Looking forward to, I guess 220 will be the next leg of your journey. So looking forward to see how, seeing how the journey goes. I know I really enjoyed when I was in Dodge City maybe five years ago. So I'm curious on your thoughts. And yeah, so I'm standing by to hear the next leg of the journey. Keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Well, Jason, I'm glad you enjoyed the uh, travel shows I did. I, I tried a few things. They were a little experimental, you know, trying the uh, FM radio surveys. I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, those episodes might be a little boring, though, some people. It's just me kind of chattering on about my travels. and uh, Well, I enjoyed it. It was a good trip. I'm glad I documented the trip in audio. Uh, this is one of my first vacations uh, I've taken a, a few in the past, though, where I really was just by myself anyway, so I, I wouldn't have someone. Uh, I, I have only myself to, to discuss the memories with. You know, I couldn't, I can't call up my sons and say, hey, remember when we were in Dodge? And and Dodge was fun. I like Dodge. Like I said, if I was there with more people, I might have even paid to go into the block. Um, it's a block long museum. But uh, I was getting tired mid trip and really wanting to hit the road and get to some of those gaming stores and stuff. So I didn't spend too much time in Dodge, but it was nice. You know, I, I, it's a nice little town. And like you heard my episode, I, I liked Kansas a lot. I think it's a great state, uh, great farming community. So, yeah, you know, try, uh, try things on the show. And I tried to include people in on my trip because I don't think a lot of people get to drive through these states. And maybe if you listen to those episodes, maybe you'll, you'll feel like you don't need to or, Hopefully, I would hope maybe the the show will motivate people to get in their car and back it out of that driveway, fill it up with gas, or charge it with that Tesla charger, and uh, 
take a road trip through the Midwest, uh, the great states of America, great states of America. People love to get on planes and go places uh, and uh, particularly out of the country. But there's nothing wrong with driving your car and seeing the countryside and, and meeting regular old folks. You know, you go to those airports enough, you're just really seeing the same kinds of people. You're not seeing a lot of locals usually. Get out of the car, drive. I mean, get out of the house, drive, uh, meet people. I think that's the best part about traveling. Uh, you meet a lot of different kinds of people, and you really get a sense of what uh, America's all about. So, uh, and I like traveling abroad. I just did it. I was there just in October. I loved it. Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, great places. Uh, and I want to go back to two of those three places. But glad you enjoyed those episodes, Jason. Thanks for all the calls. I really appreciate it.